Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the opposition parties reject swift passage of the emergency COVID-19 aid bill. Allow this legislation to be debated and voted on, just as we have done with the other bills throughout the spring. But so far, the other parties have not agreed to do this. And this is very unfortunate. The Parliamentary Budget Office says extending the CERB could cost the federal government an additional $64 billion. The problem is the government hasn't released, I don't think it knows, frankly, what it's going to do when, that, when, the, when the CERB runs out. And the government responds to claims from an RCMP deputy commissioner that systemic racism doesn't exist in the police force. And the Prime Minister is very clear that systemic racism exists in Canada. It's Thursday, June 11th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. We saw some pushback from the opposition parties yesterday uh, as the government tried to quickly pass its latest aid bill related to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, are we start- starting to see some of the dynamics of a minority parliament coming back into play here? Yeah, I think we are, because I don't think that the substance of the bill was really the, the cause of the, the discord. I mean, the bill, um, it has a extra money in payment for people with disabilities. I don't think anybody quibbles with that. On the reforms to the to the CERB, you know, putting in more conditions, uh, creating a criminal offence if you deliberately defraud, the NDP say they have problems with that, but I think that the, the Conservatives are fully on side with that measure. Um, so, again, not the substance of the bill. The Bloc wouldn't support this measure uh, or this legislation and had a range of uh, demands of the government, none of which had anything to do with the with the bill. They were they want um, a fiscal update. They want uh, a first minister's meeting on health transfers, a whole bunch of other things that really have got nothing to do with the, the measure at hand. So it's not particularly about uh, specific legislation. It's about the way that this government is treating the opposition and treating, I think, democracy. I mean, essentially, the word comes from the Prime Minister in the morning when he comes out for his uh, for the morning show in front of the TV cameras. And as far as he, he's concerned, it seems to be written in stone at that point. There is no parliamentary give and take. The special committee is still meeting, but, you know, its ability to discuss matters beyond COVID is pretty limited. And... You know, they call Parliament as a whole back to pass legislation. They, they just seem to think as soon as Parliament's back, it'll rubber stamp whatever they've suggested, and then they can disp- disband Parliament again. And I think the opposition parties are saying, no, we're not having that anymore. Yeah, and it, obviously, if you're in government in a time of crisis, uh, you're trying to solve problems. But at a certain point, you can you, there's a risk that you can start to enjoy the license you've been given and the fact that you're not being held to account and facing the same kinds of questions on a daily basis that you would during normal times, right? Right. I mean, I think that it's working for the government. I mean, you look at their poll numbers, they're sky high. You know, it's a crisis, so people are generally on site with the government of the day. But, you know, I think that that, that from the government's point of view, it's inconvenient to have Parliament sitting. It requires energy that they feel would be better 
used in focusing on the on the crisis. Well, you know, I think most people were on site with that in the early days of the crisis, and we saw legislation pretty much sailing through Parliament. Now they overreached when they when they were basically demanding that their their legislation be unopposed until 2022, uh, and had to to roll back from that. But uh, but since then, there seems to have been a sense that you know that the, the opposition would would play ball. Uh, but then when the, when when the government essentially, with the help of the NDP, disbanded Parliament and kept this special committee going, I think that uh, the Conservatives in particular felt, you know, this is this government was not elected as a majority government. The, the people of Canada wanted there to be checks and balances on the Liberals, and those checks and balances have, have gone for now. So when legislation comes along that requires at least one party to, to support them, I think most of the opposition parties at this stage are saying, well, why would we want to do that? All right, let's turn to the cost of many of the programs that have been put in place by the government during this time. Uh, The Parliamentary Budget Office is saying that extending the Canada Emergency Response Benefit could cost as much as $64 billion. Is there a limit to how much the government can spend right now on helping Canadians and businesses and shoring up the economy during this challenging time? Well, the short answer is no. I mean, I think that the, the government really has no choice here. The um, For around about 2 million Canadians who have signed on to the CERB, they signed on early, middle of March, and their benefits end in early July. That's the 16-week period. Now, the government has got, you know, many of these people have no alternative income. Now, the government's hope was that people would come, start coming off the CERB and start going on to the wage subsidy. As businesses started reviving, they would bring back workers and 75% of their wages would be subsidised, at least initially, by the government. The take-up on that, sir, on the wage subsidy has been pretty disappointing. I mean, when you look at the way the government had allocated money, it had allocated $75 billion initially for the wage subsidy and $35 billion for the CERB. Now, the, the CERB is, is, is only two-thirds of the way through, and it's already spent $40 billion, so it's going to be $60 billion. Hence, the Parliamentary Budget Officer's calculation that if it's extended for another 16-week period, it'll be another $60 billion. Now, clearly, the, the wage subsidy is not going to reach $75 billion, so, so the, the total price tag is not going to be $60 billion plus the on top of the $100 billion the government had already allocated. But there is going to be a massive additional expense that was not in the, the original figures. And the problem is the government hasn't released, I don't think it knows, frankly, what it's going to do when, that, when, the, when the CERB runs out. Now, we've seen in the legislation that's going through Parliament right now, there are changes to the CERB. You're, if you're offered a job, you're obliged to take it or you don't get the benefit. If you, obviously, if you defraud, you, you're guilty of a criminal offence. But... What they essentially want to do is recreate the employment insurance program, which is a much tougher thing to qualify for than the CERB, which was essentially given out to everybody. I mean, there were basically no questions asked. The government feels it can't perpetuate the CERB exactly as it exists at the moment. But it doesn't. Ha- it's the, the, the technical and policy details of trying to modify the CERB and to, to become a more stringent program are currently beyond the government. I mean, I've talked to people who are saying, yeah, we're, we're really grappling with this. The technology and the, the policy demands 
are tough. Now, that, you know, this is not an obscure policy detail. These, there are going to be two million Canadians in early July who are wondering, am I going to get any more money? And they really, you know, many of them don't have any alternative plan at the moment as far as income. So I think, yeah, the answer is the government has to keep supporting those people. But I think we're we're now reaching uh, the crunch time where governments are, are having to think, how do we wind down these massive aid programmes? And at the end of the day, how do we pay for them? Do we have to start thinking about increasing taxes or cutting spending? I don't think we're there yet, but we're certainly at the first part where the government has got to think about how do we start reining these things in. At some level, though, they just have no alternative. They've got to keep paying for people who have got no alternative source of income. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's turn to the issue of systemic racism in policing in Canada. The government uh, was answering questions about that yesterday, including Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. Uh, after a, a deputy commissioner of the RCMP uh, in Alberta yesterday, uh, a couple of days ago, said that uh, it didn't exist. It wasn't systemic, that racism existed, but it wasn't systemic. And the RCMP commissioner was having to answer questions about that yesterday as well. What are your thoughts on on uh, how the police, how the RCMP and other police services are handling this and how this has turned into a political discussion in this country? Well, I think that, uh, that uh, the RCMP commissioner tried to to go for an element of nuance. She said she was, she was struggling with the definition of systemic racism, but there is unconscious bias in her words in the RCMP. Unfortunately for her, I don't think there's room for nuance in this debate. I think that's unfortunate. I, I do think there is systemic racism in, in many areas of government. You know, For example, there was a funding gap in education until very recently. First Nations children were getting less government funding per capita than other children. Clearly not right. I think it's hard to argue there's not systemic racism in the RCMP after we saw the, the assault on the, uh, the First Nations chief in Alberta at the weekend. So there, you know, there are issues, but I think that there, it is unfortunate that there is no room for a debate on these things. I mean, Christopher Freeland came out yesterday and said quite blatantly, all federal departments must understand that systemic racism exists in Canada. Well, why is that? Because the Prime Minister said there is. And I think that um, it's unfortunate that in a country like Canada, issues like this cannot be debated sensibly between, between, people, uh, between right-thinking people. According to the government, it exists. There is no room for, for debate on the matter. I think that uh, the Deputy Commissioner in Alberta has been... Um, hold up for, for saying that while racism exists, it may not be systemic. Um, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, Quebec Premier Francois Legault, also been widely criticised for saying that uh, they don't see widespread or systemic racism uh, as, they, as they see it in the US. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's a legitimate point of view. But you're not able, I don't think, in the public realm at the moment to argue that. And I think that's, that's sad. All right, John, I appreciate having your comments on all these topics today. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thanks. That's John Iveson of the National Post. It is very important for all federal government institutions, including the police, to operate from an understanding that systemic racism is a problem for us here in Canada. 
Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues we need a new, smarter vision for public safety. The Star writes, Suddenly, politicians who once ran in fear of being labeled anti-police are scrambling to get in front of a growing movement to reshape police forces. We must rethink our notions of what constitutes public safety as a whole and make sure that policing makes all communities feel safe. The challenge will be to make sure change happens when the streets are no longer filled with protesters. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues MPs should boost pandemic productivity by physically distancing from the House. Martin writes, Does anyone believe MPs sitting in a mostly empty commons or tuning in via a glitchy video connection represents the best investment of their political time these days? When Parliament is sitting, cooperation should replace confrontation. Government transparency should reign over opposition suspicion and leaders should play nice to deliver a better minority than could be achieved by a single-minded majority. What we saw the other day was none of the above. In the National Post, Vivian Berkovici argues we have failed the elderly during the COVID-19 crisis. Berkovici writes, Hundreds of thousands of elderly Canadians are living effectively in cages with sporadic brief movement. The collateral damage to their quality of life and longevity is a greater threat than COVID-19. It would take so little effort to organize safe outings and visits. Yet we do nothing but repeat empty platitudes about the sanctity of preserving life at all costs. Locking down the elderly is neither humane nor sustainable. We can and must do better. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will attend private meetings, then speak with the President of Rwanda before hosting a call with provincial and territorial premiers. He will then visit a company in Ottawa to highlight how businesses are benefiting from the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy and other economic measures and speak with the media. And later in the day, will participate in a virtual dialogue with the Prince of Wales. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, June the 11th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.